The iPhone XR is here at T-Mobile, and there's a whole lot to love. Like taking those perfect new year, new you portrait mode selfies you're going to share. Nice. It's the best way to stay connected to everyone you'll heart most in 2019. So get ready to fall in love with iPhone XR on T-Mobile, the most loved in wireless. Call 1-800-T-MOBILE to learn more or visit a store today. Welcome to the latest edition of the Yanks are Coming podcast. My name is Carter Krishnayer. His name is Neil Blackman, and we're back with you just a few days after our last pod. Yes, it's been that type of time following the U.S.'s elimination from qualifying for the 2018 World Cup in Russia. Neil, uh, you and I both sat in on a conference call, a media call, the other day with Sunil Gulati, and uh, I'm of two minds about this call. I think there were cer- certain things he said that were very valid, which, which showed that he understood the depth of disappointment and despair that fans across the United States are feeling and, and people who are uh, supporters of this national team program. At the other end, there were some incredulous moments from him and some just incredibly arrogant moments where he showed his hubris. Yeah, I mean, uh, that, that was kind of my take as well. I, I felt like, um, you know, it's one thing to say I take full responsibility, but it's another thing to kind of get the sense that he means it. And the way he sort of deflected a few of the harder questions suggested that maybe he doesn't take I thought that the two particular questions were, were kind of telling, and I'm sure you can point to others. One was, you know, Jeff Carlisle's kind of direct question about second cycles where he, you know, kind of undermined and rejected the premise but didn't state who any of the successful coaches were. Um, and then Brian Strauss is, you know, almost back and forth with him where, you know, Brian said, look, uh, you have a mandate, you know, how could you run again and argue that U.S. soccer is transparent and accountable when, you know, there's a public, you know, outcry for your removal? And, you know, he kind of just rejected the premise of the question and was like, of course there's a mandate. Uh, and, and here's all the reasons why. Well, I'm somebody that's asked about, you know, like the fanboys in USSF directly. I mean, I've sent emails to the Federation saying, hey, I'd really like to know what exactly this this fan uh, position within the Federation is. And most of the time, my inquiries are unanswered. So, my point being, it just seemed like an odd situation, and, and one quote in particular being telling, you know, now, today is not the day to talk about my future as president of the Federation, and it was sort of like, Really? I thought it was, like I said, I just found it incredulous. I, I thought it was incredibly naive. Now, I thought there was a certain degree of courage involved with Sunil Gulati facing the media, given uh, this is the lowest moment, at least in terms of performance level, uh, tangible performance level for the U.S. in uh, 30 years. Look, uh, we I don't think there has been um, – when, when we were first started qualifying for World Cups, or, or when we missed the 86 World Cup, when there was one spot available um, from CONCACAF uh, because Mexico had taken one of the spots as the host nation, uh, 
it was a 2014 World Cup. It was much more difficult to qualify. 1990, we qualified. Uh, Mexico was suspended uh, for using overage players in, in an underage tournament. But still, we, we had to scrape and get that second spot behind Costa Rica. Uh, same, uh, you know, there's so much talk about that 1989 Calgary goal. It was it was for second place. It wasn't for fourth place. Now you can get right. fourth place and, and make the uh, World Cup as uh, Trinidad did in um, in 2006 and as uh, Mexico did in 2014. So we finished fifth in the hex. This is actually really kind of the low point in the last 30 years. Any uh, way you you look at it from a performance yeah. standpoint for our national team program and. There is an obvious disconnect now because Sunil Galati is thinking about business considerations first. He's thinking, well, we got a stronger top-flight domestic league uh, than we've ever had before, Not, notwithstanding that the Federation is being sued by the second division or the um, established second division. That, that didn't come up in the call, of course. Uh, and we've got an established women's league. It's the first time we've been able to keep a women's league, a high-level professional women's league, around for five full seasons. That is correct. Uh, and uh, we also are in a position where we um, are the reigning World Cup champions with our women's national team. That is correct. That's all working in his favor. But, Neil, you and I know that those are things that soccer junkies and soccer nerds like us look at. The general public looks at one thing, how the men's national team is doing and how the men's national team is performing. To them, that is the sport. And it's unfortunate, right? right? There's so much more to uh, maintaining a, a, a um, year-round soccer presence in this country. We have MLS academies. We have the Development Academy program under U.S. soccer. We have uh, USL and NASL teams setting up academies. We have more teams playing at the NPSL, PDL, and UPSL level than ever before. I mean, we've got more soccer. We have more fans in this country than ever before. So Neil can point to all those things. But... Again, the big driver and in interest, the big thing that I would say the majority of people who call themselves soccer fans. Now, there are soccer snobs who can say, oh, well, they're not really soccer fans. They're just U.S. men's national team fans. Whatever. That could be the case. But the majority of people who have even some fleeting interest in the sport in this country, uh, to them, the U.S. men's national team is, is, is the driver. And we have failed. Uh, we're at our low point in 30 years with that. And he um, seemed to want to avoid that that actual discussion, which is why I ask you this. It was very courageous of him to come before us, the, the assembled media, all of whom he knew would have uh, knives out for him. But then the questions we wanted answered, which is why we assumed he had this media call, uh, he was reluctant to deal with. Yeah, and that, that was one thing. I, I wanted to touch on the, this idea that we saw a lot of people – in social media platforms saying, you know, hey, the media wasn't hard on him. And to me, you know, I didn't feel that way. I felt like there are plenty of pointed and poignant questions. I, Franco Panizzo asked him more or less point blank, you know, why aren't you resigning? The leader of a federation in almost any other country would be resigning. Right, and then and then this is, this is great. I forgot about this. So then... Instead, and Franco, who knows the game in South America, uh, you and I both know him from, from South Florida. He grew up same town as I did, Coral Springs. Um, Franco knows the game and knows what happens in these countries when you fail at your most basic objective. And Sunil turned around and decided to question 
his credibility, basically. Say, well, that's not true. You're, you're confusing coaches and federation presidents. No, no, no. That right. is true, Sunil. You, you've seen what's happened when uh, uh, England didn't qualify for the Euro 2008. And not only was uh, McLaren fired, McLaren was fired the day of, but then uh, several months later, uh, uh, the FA president stepped out. We saw this happen with the Dutch FA recently. We've seen it happen with FAs in South America when the Colombian uh, Colombia had a disastrous qualifying campaign for the 2010 World Cup. They started cycling through leaders of their federation. We even see it in Mexico, right? It just happened. In, it just happened in Ghana, by the way. It just well, island. right? And Ghana has qualified for the last three World Cups. Every American fan's aware of that because we played them in each of the last three World Cups. Uh, they are considered kind of the most stable sub-Saharan African nation in terms of their football infrastructure, maybe in terms of their politics, too. They didn't qualify, so everyone's out. That's the way it works in this sport. This isn't... Uh, and uh, I, I hate to come back to this. Not I hate to come back to this. I'm going to... I have to bring this up. Taylor Twelman had a eloquent rant, if you want to call it that, on SportsCenter the other night where uh, he's obviously talking to an American sporting audience, and he had to explain... It's different than American sports, where you get the you get an allocation, uh, you get higher in the allocation order, you get a higher draft pick. Uh, when you fail in other parts of the world, you get fired. That's the way it works in this sport. And um, yeah, Franco's question was spot on, and and Galati, that was probably the most uh, OMG moment. Galati chose to attack Franco rather than answer the question. Right. Right. I mean, and so you know, I felt like there were. There were pointed questions, and then I think also, you know, when you have uh, Neil Booth monitor the call and moderate it, you know, you can kind of avoid the people that might also ask pointed questions. So this idea that that media, I get it. We all feel bad, and we all want to share some sort of accountability for for what has happened. But but the notion that I'll put it this way. I feel like the U.S. soccer media in the last five to six years has grown up a lot. And I'm not really sure that the U.S. soccer media is necessarily so much a part of the problem. And and that's what's what's weird about, you know, people, a lot of people are, are, are divided and looking for different, you know, factions to cast some blame on and, I, you know, I'm still of the mind that there's a lot of collective failure to go around, but but what I'm not up for anymore is these arguments about, well, Galati's really good at his job, and it's not fair to judge. Well, no, I mean, look, he might be good at some of the economic aspects of his job, right? In fact, you could argue that he's very good, but the reality is that, as you mentioned, you know, the men's program is the the standard by which the Federation is judged. And they failed to qualify for two consecutive Olympics. They missed a U-17 and a U-20 World Cup. And they just missed the World Cup. And that's all happened under his watch in the last several years. It's time for new leadership. Right, and I would point out that um, we had basically, obviously we missed the 2004 Olympics, but that was because of bad luck, right? We were playing down in Mexico, and Mexico dropped a second in their group, and then we, we had to play them, and 
the famous match, right? Wine and Donovan had Alisco with the, right, uh, uh, urinating on the pitch and, and all of that, and we ended up uh, right. losing. But generally at the youth level, at the U23 level, at the U20 level, at the U17 level, we have qualified for everything in the 20 years prior to Sunil Gulati becoming the Federation president, even in the 1980s. I mean, our best under-20 under World Cup, I remember, was the 89 under-20 World Cup. That's how we knew we were going to have a good team, a decent team, when we got when we hosted in 94, and it turned out uh, some of those guys helped us qualify a few months later for, for, for the um, men's World Cup, you know, again, uh, with that win in Trinidad. But uh, it, it wasn't until... Um, Really, the 2009 U-20 cycle when uh, Thomas didn't have a very good team and, and got bounced out in the first round uh, down in uh, Egypt, I think the, the World Cup was. And then uh, 2011 didn't qualify, you know, U-17s didn't qualify two years later um, 20, in 2013. And then the 20, uh, 2012 missing the Olympics uh, with the, um, uh, with, with the uh, draw with Canada and the loss to El Salvador. By the way, uh, the draw with Canada... The, the hero of that game was a guy that was a fourth stringer on FC Edmonton, uh, which was because I was working for the NASL at the time, and uh, the, uh, the guy, Michael Mishevitz, never played. Um, and then 2016, uh, the failure came losing to Honduras. Now, these, these ga- failures came on American soil and came with superior talent, uh, at least on paper, to the teams we were beat by. We weren't beat by Mexico. Um, so the bottom line is that any metric you apply, you we failed. Uh, Casey Keller pointed out on ESPN the other day, we have failed to qualify for the last two Olympics at the hands of the Olympic uh, at the hands of Concacaf opposition. The same Concacaf opposition we now face and has eliminated us from um, from the Senior World Cup. So these are all failures, ma- massive failures. And, and I have to say, I mean, I think. Sunil Gulati and people like Alexi Lalas point to the development of, um, of the youth programs, particularly at MLS clubs, uh, MLS academies, and, and you've got some high-level academies offering scholarships at USL and NASL clubs also, uh, particularly uh, North Carolina FC. I'll single them out, their program uh, out. Right. But that, again, is probably going to be a tangible benefit for 2026, maybe a little bit for the 2022 cycle. I have to tell you, Neil, when I think about this, Panama is going to fade because I think they're, that this was their last call for their golden generation. But Honduras will probably be better four years from now. And I fear we could be fighting again for fourth in CONCACAF if we don't wake up and make the changes that need to be made. And it doesn't sound like Sunil is prepared to do that. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, that was uh, – kind of moving on from, from the, the call in a moment, but I mean, I feel like the one of the messages of the call that was weird was you know, this idea, well, we're going to go ahead and evaluate you know, what went wrong, and we'll get external help if we need to, and we don't want to be insular, but then, within five minutes of, of those sorts of productive comments, you have you know, the comparison of pay-to-play to piano lessons. Uh, which, I thought, which I thought was just astonishingly tone deaf. Yeah. You know, if, if ever he wanted to sound like an Ivory Tower economics professor from an Ivy League college, um, 
that was his kind of whoa moment. Um, and I, you know, this, this is not. I think you're right. I mean, I think I think that the U.S. need to start. And it's one of the reasons I've been emphasizing so much the idea of hey, let's here's all the kids we need to play immediately because. I think this is going to have to be more of a cycle that resembles the 90s cycle in that you sort of develop and build a team chemistry and cohesion very early on, and you're just hard to beat. Yeah. And, and that's, yeah. that's kind of your method to find qualifying. And then you're right, you're probably hosting a World Cup in 2026, which is partly thanks to Sunil, of course. And, you know, maybe you have more of a, a, a new identity and an idea of what you want to be uh, in that year. But maybe that's where we transition to to what we saw this morning with the U-17 team, which is a team that was pretty content to kind of sit back a little bit and then pick you apart on the counterattack with, with some blistering athleticism and a, and a good amount of technical quality. I mean, maybe this – the U.S. needs to have multiple ways to play you know, I think it's something that we've talked about. But I think if there's a baseline identity for what will work and what's unique to sort of the American idea, it might be that that type of style that we saw this morning. Yeah, I, I agree with that, Neil. I think John Hackworth, I criticized him a lot after the um, the loss to Columbia. I think it was Thursday. I can't even remember. My days are all mixed up now. But, um, yeah, it just kind of extended the hangover from Tuesday night was that Thursday performance. And I felt like Hackworth was too reactive in that match, sitting deep, uh, playing for a draw, and really kind of showing a losing mentality, some of the things we've seen in the past from U.S. soccer. I mean, I think about the way Peter Nowak uh, coached the team in the, in the 2008 Olympics, where Charlie Davies didn't come on to like the 80th minute. Uh, in, in a game that we needed to get a result in. Um, and, and because it was possible we could get through with a loss, and Novak just left him on the bench. Right. Um, and Michael Orozco had been sent off in that game. There were those tendencies among American uh, coaches, or Americanized coaches, and obviously Hackworth and, and Novak worked together uh, at Philadelphia. So, um, but I thought this was fantastic. I thought Hackworth, the way he set up the team today was, okay, we'll absorb some pressure, but we also not only are going to be um, great quickly on the counter, but also once we absorb that pressure and we get an early goal, we're not going to just um, play on the break, although it turned out we've scored a, a number of goals on the counterattack. We are going to be able to maintain some possession. We're going to be able right. to stroke the ball around and keep the ball in midfield and win the midfield battle and win most of those 50-50 balls. That is something I have to say was severely lacking in, in Bruce Arena's tactics uh, and at times Jurgen Klinsmann's tactics the last uh, last few years. Now, I, I think um, this, is the, this is the sort of thing, obviously this isn't the formation that Hackworth played, but this is the sort of thing going back to when Bob managed the full national team, that that 4-2-2-2, that bucket formation, empty bucket formation as it was dubbed, allowed the U.S. to do, because what you would do is you would play essentially without wingers, right? You'd get your width from um, the fullbacks. And while Donovan and Dempsey at times would start as wingers, and you'd have Davies and uh, Altador, you know, Davies before the car accident up top, um, it would allow Donovan and Dempsey, if you got a lead in a game, to kind of cut and 
stay inside, play as kind of technical players getting a lot of touches on the ball, allow Michael and whoever his midfield partner was, Benny or, or Rico Clark, uh, Maurice do whoever it was, to kind of play um, deeper and, and absorb pressure. Um, right. And we haven't had that kind of dynamic. Again, we haven't had that level player, right? I mean, we can beat up on Klinsman and, and Arena all we want, but th- there's been certainly a drop-off in the talent level of the pool since Bob was the coach. But I saw elements of that kind of thinking today. It was a different formation, but a formation that allowed us to um, – to keep the ball a little bit after we had the lead and force Paraguay to chase, and as they committed more people to chase, allow us to to, to, to kill them on the break. And Wea and Sargent, um, et cetera, did such a good job once we um, once we were in that established position. So um, we're going to be in a quarterfinal against either Japan or England, both very good teams. Um, Japan has always been good at the youth level. England having a bit of a renaissance the last few years with their youth teams. They won the U-20 World Cup, of course, and uh, thus far this U-17 World Cup perhaps have been the best team. So it's going to be a tall order. Let's let's look bigger picture. We'll talk about, if we get past that quarterfinal, maybe our next podcast about the possibility yeah, of winning, no, no, no. winning this tournament. But let's talk bigger picture. Who on this U-17 squad has impressed you enough to think that they, uh, A, could get an immediate call-up for the next set of friendlies, and then B, who could be integrated in the full men's national team, let's say, by Gold Cup 2019? Well, let's start with the Gold Cup 2019, because I think the guy that, that has been most impressive at this tournament has been uh, Chris Durkin. And I think, you know, I think if you're going to play that that kind of counterattacking style, you have to have that strong six and that strong eight. Um in the center, you know, either demand a double pivot or the empty bucket or however you want to establish it, set it up. Um, so I think I think he's a guy that, that interests me, not because um, he's ready to play for the national team in November, but rather, you know, maybe this type of performance gets him out of MLS and into Europe. And if that happens, then, you know, I think he's certainly somebody that by – Gold Cup 19, Copa America 2020, um, probably, you know, could be available. But in terms of next month, you know, I definitely think that that I thought that Josh Sargent was a guy that Bruce Arena would probably look at when the U.S. qualified uh, in January or in the March friendly. Yeah, especially since we know he'll be at a a European club come uh, January or come... uh his 18th birthday, having signed, signed a pre-contract yeah. with Werder Bremen. Exactly. So I kind of assumed that, you know, maybe we'd even get a look at him in November. Um, nothing about anything we've seen now has changed that. I also think that Timothy Weah is probably a guy that, if he's not evaluated in November, certainly we'll get a look shortly. Um you know, I don't know how much of his move to Paris, St. Germain, was about his last name and how much of it was about his quality. Certainly. Well, I was going to say that, um, you know, this is a marketing possibility for U.S. soccer in the future because of who Sonny is. Um, oh, sure. I, I, I think it's, you know, the idea that, that you could have the son of a, of a Ballon d'Or winner um, playing next to Christian Pulisic is, 
this uh, marketing dream. So my thought would be the faster and, and the quicker you can ingratiate him into the national team fold, the better. Um, you know, he has a lot of learning to do, but he also does appear to have quite a bit of technical ability. I mean, the goal that he put in the top corner today was just a stunning goal. Um, it really was kind of reminiscent of some of the U-17 Freddie Adu goals that we saw. The thing that I think kind of differentiates him is um, not just how active he is in going and finding the game and coming back and receiving the ball, but I think he's just a little stronger than Freddie. Yeah. Um, like he's kind of a powerful runner, which, you know, one of the problems with Adu was always that if you could bump him or chop him, Tended to get frustrated. Yeah, so the, pro- the problem with the do always to me was that he wasn't pacey enough to play out wide, and he would, uh, and he was just such a technical player. You wanted him getting as many touches as possible, right? Uh, but he was just too fragile to play inside. I mean, it's still one of the great tragedies of uh, American soccer that we couldn't figure out how to uh, how to accommodate his talents. But again, I, I see that. Uh, I mean, there are club managers like Bob Bradley and uh, and. Um, uh, Jesse Marsh, who have been different, but I see that with Sasha Kleister, too. I keep saying, you know, if we had a different footballing culture or maybe a different level of coach, we, we might have uh, had that guy as the core of the national team for the last 10 years. Yeah, beginning. well, I mean, all you had to do that was watch, and I don't know that, especially a lot of the intercoming listeners are, are frustrated with MLS and share some of the frustrations that I think a lot of people have with the league, but if you watched the game between Atlanta and New York last night, I mean, you saw, you know, just glimpses of, of and this was in a nil-nil game, of, of what kind of quality Sasha Kleschen offers. Um, and he's just brilliant. And it's actually kind of a brilliant game, but, but it, it speaks to your point. Um, and, and also it served as, as a nice little rebuttal last night to the idea that that you can't have some wonderful soccer games in MLS, but but I think I think getting back to our original point, you know, I think we and and Sargent are probably the two guys from this roster that you kind of look at and say, hey, immediately, let's see if we can ingratiate them into the fold. And then there's a couple guys like I mentioned, Carlton or Andrew Carlton. We haven't mentioned the Atlanta United product, and then uh, Chris Jerkin. I think both those guys in the near future probably get into the mix, but but not quite yet. I want to um, transition now to talking a little bit about Jermaine Jones' rant uh, that he put up yeah. on social media, which, um, it, it, unfortunately, I mean, Jermaine's not a, a PR guy, um, speaks from the heart. <laughs> it took him about five or six minutes to really get to the heart of the matter, and I, I fear most people who are watching this are like, ah, this is just nonsense. Um, he's praising Pulisic and, bl- and uh, ex- uh, blaming MLS. Uh, but then when you got to f- minute five or six, from that point on until about minute 12, that could have read like a manifesto of everything um, we, uh, we've talked about. And uh, I, first off, I want to, uh, as a as a member of the media, as a fan of this program, I want to thank Jermaine Jones for having the, uh, the, the for caring enough to do that, right? To uh, sure. to put his views out there. I, I think that shows a, a commitment level, even after he's off the national team uh, and his career is winding down, uh, how much it hurt him 
what he saw on Tuesday night. Uh, but similarly, I think um, when you talk about um, about the points he's making, uh, specifically Jordan Morris and his desire to see some of these other guys test themselves. Um, and then he's also said, hey, at the end of this, look, uh, because Dempsey and Bradley did what they did, Bradley went to Roma, you, you, you come back to MLS and you actually earn your money and you've tested yourself. Um, right. I think that is an important lesson for, um, for fans and for young players that – um, even if you end up coming back to MLS, the guy we just talked about, Sasha Kleiston, came back to MLS, but he went to Anderlecht, a team in the Champions League. Now, it's always in Champions League or Europa League for several years. Played a number of games at the European level. Um, yeah. You come back... Started a, more, a lot of Champions League games. Yeah, he played in a lot. He started a lot of Champions League games. You come back a more finished product. Um, I, I know there was some pushback on Jones for, for delivering this. I thought... Uh, that was unfortunate. I mean, there, there are people who just don't like him or just don't want to hear that message. Um, but it was important. Um, I mean, what's your thought on that? Don't, do you want to see more former players speak up the way Jermaine Jones has in the wake of this um, th- this qualifying debacle? Yeah, I mean, in a word, yes. You know, my immediate thought was, let's find Jermaine Jones a role in whatever type of federation we want to build. Yeah, that was my reaction too, actually. That was kind of my immediate thought. Um, you know, and we do need guys that, that wore the shirt to speak out. I mean, I think back immediately to now having watched it on the uh, as a glutton for punishment, having watched most of the end broadcast on on what, what of it I could take on uh, what DVR, you know, and, and seeing Carlos Bocanegra on the, on the verge of tears after the, the failed qualification was, that was something to see. Um, and then obviously, obviously Taylor's, um, remarks, um, you know, Alexi Lalas's rant, teleprompter rant was, was less persuasive. Um, <laughs> That's a nice way of putting it. That's well, well worded. Uh, He's walked it back a little today on Twitter, hasn't he? Uh, I guess it wasn't received the way he thought it would be. <laughs> but, but um, you know, th- yeah, this is something that, that we need. I mean, uh, Cello, we talked about on our last podcast, I think Landon Donovan has at least said some things. You know, people need to, to speak up and speak out. What's going to be interesting to me is what happens when Tim Howard retires and it's his time to talk about it. What happens when, um, you know, maybe Howard will be a company man. He might be, but I, I'm thinking Deuce probably won't be and Jeff right, Cameron probably was, won't yeah, be. So those would be the two that are nearing retirement. And who knows, Jeff Cameron probably, you know, he's got, he's still in, in the starting uh, 11 for a Premier League team and a Premier League team that's not playing particularly well. So, um, he needs to fight and hold down his place. Maybe he retires from the national team now and speaks out now. Um, it's no coincidence. We talked about it in the last show. It's no coincidence he talked to an, an English-based American reporter, Joe Prince-Wright, to get uh, part of his account, at least about these last two games, on the record. So I think, yeah. I think when Cameron and, and Deuce retire from the national team, it'll be very different. 
Yeah, I guess I was, I mean, I was a little more skeptical of, of the uh, NBC report until I realized that Joe Prince Wright was English. <laughs> right. Oh, well, that makes sense. Um, yeah, I mean, like, look, that's why people go to certain outlets. I mean, Fabian Johnson talked to Yanks are coming and no one else, right? Right. I mean, so there's a reason. Some players are just more comfortable with certain reporters. And, uh yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to kind of hear where those verdicts and judgments come down. But for, for me, the Jones thing is interesting because he also has so much experience in a system that was rebuilding and refreshing itself uh, in Germany. So he kind of has an idea, broadly one would think, of, of what's expected and what's needed next um, when you when you do have a problem that you have to fix. Yeah, and, and I think, again, um, in, in, in excellent reporting uh, here on our site with that, but it begs the issue again, and I hate to bring this up, but I think we're going to have to because we have to have a conversation about all these issues. There's an ugly nativism in part of our fan base, and it's it's funny because some of it comes from people that otherwise are perfectly tolerant. But um, look, I guess you could make the decision now if you want a team full of uh, American-born players and players that are just developed in the U.S. system. Maybe that's fair. Maybe that's what a national team, you, you, your vision of the national team is. But don't complain when you don't qualify for a World Cup, right? Because right. That's that, that that that's um, unilateral disarmament in a sport where Spain it's not beneath Spain to naturalize Diego Costa and give him a run out. It's not beneath Germany to get uh, Miroslav uh, Miroslav Klose and Lucas Podolski, Kakao, some of these other guys. Uh, they've gotten citizenship who weren't born in in uh, in Germany uh, to play them. It, it's not uh, beneath England to uh, to get uh, to get Raheem Sterling to play for them when he was eligible to play for Jamaica and was born in Kingston. Um, we have to be more tolerant about this. And, and I think it's a clear um, – there's a, there, there's a clear fault line. It's not about foreign-born and American because Darlington Nagby obviously was born and grew up in Liberia. Um, it right. is about specific uh, players who have not played in Major League Soccer or did not come through our youth development system. And to me, that's a lot uglier. Um, yeah. No, I, I think that's a, there, you know, maybe there's a touch of that. And, and I don't think it's even a touch, you know, because, look, I mean, all you have to do is go to, to my Twitter timeline and, and see my kind of tongue-in-cheek tweet about Fabian Johnson starting yesterday and playing quite well Yeah. Um, for, for Muchen Gladbach and then seeing some of the responses, you know, one of them, he hasn't been great in a U.S. shirt in a while. You know, I, I'm conciliatory to that. But, but you know, who has? I think, I, yeah, well, that's a great point. But but I'd also say, you know, yeah, he, you know, it's not like he had no good games for the national team this year, but they were minimal. He also battled injuries in the spring and then, you know, got called in by Arena having played 10 minutes in September. Um, and then spent most of the night against Costa Rica, with all due respect to Jorge Viafania, basically shading and providing Viafania cover while Viafania was getting torched. Right. So, 
you know, I'm not really sure what people expected him to do. I mean, look at his heat map in that match, right? Like, he was clearly pushed back because his fullback was not competent. Um, but nobody cares about Diafania because Diafania played maybe, you know, for Portland or whatever, whatever the reason is. And he won the Swainio MLS contest. Look, th- the point is, I think, to me, yeah. I've, I've, I've decided that it's no longer a foreign-born uh, slash foreigner versus American thing. It is uh, an insecure defense of Major League Soccer, and that's where I have to draw the line. Because, I, I, like I said, it's a national team. It's perfectly legitimate, although I think it's stupid in this day and age, given what Spain, Italy, Italy's another one where they dare, right? Um, and, and others, Spain, Italy, England, uh, Holland, what they're all doing, uh, France, most foreign-born players. But, um, you know, I guess it's perfectly legitimate if you're going to say, hey, I just want players that are born in the United States and have come up in our youth development system. But it takes on a whole other dimension when you talk about guys uh, who never played in your system. And, and, and it seems to be something where, you know, if, if this um, insecure defensive MLS existed 15 years ago, maybe people would have been like, hey, you know, we don't want this Steve Chirundolo guy. We don't want this guy playing for the national team. He went over to Germany when he was young. He's never played in our domestic league. Um, well, that's-, that, that's how insane it is, really. Yeah, well, look, and that's what bothers me most about the Johnson stuff, right, is is here, how many times do we have to go over the distinction between a legitimate criticism of a player's investment or commitment, like Timothy Chandler, where, you know, they just never, ever produced in a national team shirt, vis-a-vis Fabian Johnson, who was so eager to play for the national team that he switched positions for an entire World Cup cycle and cried when he got hurt in a knockout round match at the World Cup. Right. I mean, you know, what do you want? What more evidence of of his commitment level do you need? And so when he says something that lots of star players have said, you know, don't call me in for matches that aren't as important, I'm getting older, and oh, by the way, my club, Mucha Gladbach, has lots of depth at wing. And so, you know, when I fly out for a pop-up friendly and risk getting hurt and losing my spot, that's bad. You know, do I want him to say that? No. But, but this, was, this used to be the, uh, the policy. Um, look, there are times, and again, yeah. maybe Arena manages differently than uh, Bradley does. There were times Bradley didn't call DeMarcus Beasley in because he was fighting for his right. spot first at Manchester City, then at Rangers. There were times he didn't call Bobby Convey in because Convey, uh, I remember a specific friendly against Mexico, he didn't call Convey in because Convey had gotten the run of games where he was playing really well for Reading when Reading was in the Premier League. And Convey was like, yeah, I don't really want to fly back for this friendly even though it's Mexico uh, and then have to come back and reclaim my spot, you know. And, and um, there was also um, a deal cut b- between West Ham and Bob Bradley over Jonathan Spector's participation in friendlies. Uh, because at the time, Spectre, it, it, people might forget this, because the Spectre they're seeing in Orlando is a shell of the Jonathan Spectre of, uh, of <laughs> 8 to 10 years ago. It's not the same player, but um, this is a player uh, after injuries and after just being worn down. Jonathan Spectre was a really high-level player for a club that was battling relegation every year in the Premier League. And um, Bob Bradley had to make that deal with West Ham. Hey, I'm not going to call him in for some of these friendlies so right, that I right. can definitely have them when I have qualifiers and when I have the Confed Cup, and oh, by the way, the Confed Cup in 2009, Spectre was lights out. Marvelous, right, marvelous. And, and you know, so you're right, and, and I don't know if it's just because these guys all had one passport instead of two, but for 
for whatever reason, it wasn't a big deal then. So I guess when Fabian Johnson says it and, you know, he's not. Although, we, I, I, in, in, in fairness, I guess now that I'm thinking about the Spectre instance, Convy and Beasley, it was different because they had come up through MLS. But Spectre, I remember hearing people complain at the time, oh, this guy went over to England. He went, remember, he went to Manchester United's Youth Academy. Uh, and he had played youth soccer with uh, with uh, Michael Bradley, um, which is why Bob knew him so well. Um, right. But there was this fe- feeling among some of our fans that, ah, you know, he went over to England when he was young. He was never really committed to, to, to us, which is nonsense. He went over there to better himself, not because he uh, yeah. wasn't committed to MLS. I mean, so that's where I'm coming from. I think a lot of people, it's an MLS defense. It's not really um, – a defense of, of our system and American-born players, because now that we now I hadn't thought about this, but now that we mentioned the Specter example, it wasn't quite as visceral as it's been with uh, Chandler or Fabian Johnson or Jermaine Jones at times or Brooks, but it was there. You know, this is a guy that that that, that went over at a young age. Maybe he's not really doesn't really feel American. He doesn't feel as committed to the national team. When in fact I knew because I was reporting on the national team that in fact Bradley had had to. Um, had had to make this deal with West Ham about when he called him up because he was so critical and was getting games. And, um, you know, at one of these English or German clubs, these big-time clubs, particularly when you're fighting relegation, um, you pull a guy out of the team for a week, he may not get back in the team. Let's be honest. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, I just think that there's there's differences. You can tell when a player's not invested, you know, and (laughs) <laughs> Thomas Dooley, I don't think it was ever really a question, right? Like, right. And so, Ernie Stewart, it, never a question. Yeah, I mean, it's just interesting. It's interesting where people like draw the line. Oh well, Johnson's better for Richard Gladback than he is for the United States. Well, I guess for the last year and a half, that's that's true. But remember when he was in really torrid form at wing for Munchen Gladback and one of the top. 10 to 15 chance creators in the Bundesliga, he was playing fullback for the national team. Right. So, you know, and these sorts of criticisms require at least a modicum of fairness. And I'm not sure that, that we've really seen any of that. Yeah, I, I think we're, we're so used to having a culture where we had guys that, uh, with the exception of Brad Friedel, who was a guy that was prob- much better, was probably had a better club career than international career, although he had a great international career too. But I think we're, we're a culture where we've had players who, like Landon Donovan, like Eddie Lewis, like, um, gosh, there were a couple other names that just escaped me, DeMarcus Beasley, that have generally been better international uh, with their careers yeah. than with their club careers. Um, Brian McBride, until uh, his time at Fulham when he was with Columbus, he was a better national team player than he was MLS player. Good MLS player, right. great national team player. I mean, Stern John was the guy. And then Jeff Cunningham on Columbus that were banging in the uh, more goals. Um, we've always had that. Uh, Deuce was great at both levels. When Deuce was rolling, he was, um, you know, there's still no goal you could argue that an American has scored in Europe that was bigger than Deuce's goal against Juventus in the Europa League for, for Fulham at the yeah. Cottage uh, back in 2010. But um, we've generally had uh, players that have been as good, if not better, at the international level. And now we're beginning to adjust to the fact that we have some guys that, quite, quite frankly, are better club players. And, and uh, 
that's the way it is in most of the world. I mean, most of the world, people in Argentina get frustrated with Messi. I don't know why, but they do. Engl- if you read the English press, they're constantly frustrated with the players, saying, hey, how come this guy who's so great for Arsenal or Man United or Man City isn't as good for England? Um, right. That's part of being a, a football culture, and I think it's something we have to come to, to grips with. Um, for so long, we were used to guys playing better for us than they played for their club teams, and, and uh, that's plainly not happening anymore, and part of it is circumstance. I mean, um, Jeff Cameron, for instance, I think plays better for Stoke because he's just got a more settled situation there. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't, I, I think that there's there's something to that. I, Cameron, of course, though, has, has been, was one of the players that, that was having a very good hex until until that fateful uh, evening in Costa Rica, right? I mean, Cameron was was marvelous at Azteca, and uh, and you know so good, in fact, early in the hex that I had written an article saying, "Hey, I'm a little bit concerned about the U.S. relying on a 31 year old center back who's going to be 32 when the World Cup starts because that that's longer in the tooth than you necessarily want to have." somebody that you, you know, rely on as the anchor of your defense. Well, little did I know that, that he was going to have that bad night in New Jersey and then not play again. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think you're right. I, it, that's just part of the, the evolution of the sport. It's, it's a normal and natural thing to have players that are better club players sometimes. And then there's players like Josie Altador that, that spend a career being better in the national. Yeah, culture. he's another example. That, that's right. That was the other player I was thinking of was Altador. Then the other one might be Eddie Pope, right? Eddie Pope never played yeah. a game outside Major League Soccer professionally, but was was comparable to European center backs um, and, and still will go down probably as the best American center back because uh, in history because Gooch got injured. I, I would argue Gooch was, would have been better uh, long term, but you know, uh, that, that's the situation. <sighs> So let's let's kind of shift the discussion to um, the coaching situation. U.S. Soccer yeah. has announced that there will be a friendly against Portugal in November. Um, I imagine we'll see a very young U.S. team. They've also indicated at the bottom of their release that in the next few days now, I guess four to five days, so probably by the end of the week, they'll un- they'll announce who the interim head coach will be. Um, but I can't imagine that this interim head coach is somebody that, that will be, well, I don't want to say I can't imagine. It seems unlikely that, 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 that whoever the interim coach is is the person that gets the job ultimately. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I would be stunned if the interim head coach, unless it's a guy from Major League Soccer whose team has been eliminated from the playoffs, uh, will get the game, the, the, the gig permanently, uh, or, or would even it be in consideration to get it permanently. Now, obviously, when you hire an interim head coach or you, you promote someone to an interim head coach, you interview them as a courtesy. That happens at college football programs when guys get uh, get sacked. I mean, I, I think even DJ Durkin may have uh, interviewed for the Florida job before right. Jim McElwain was hired, yeah. right? And Larry Scott right. interviewed for the Miami job before uh, uh, Mark Richt was hired. But it was always going to go to that higher-profile, big-name coach from outside. I think um, those are just the two most recent examples familiar to me. But I think yeah. that that's how it goes, right? You'll interview the interim coach, and then you'll, as Sunil Galati indicated on our call, would um, 
cast a wide net for a, a replacement. Um, unless it's somebody who's been eliminated for the MLS playoffs. And I use this example, let's say Columbus, they won yesterday in Orlando. We're taping this on Monday um, after the MLS games. Let's say Ber- uh, Berhalter loses. Let's, let's say he loses um, in the first round, in, in, in the playing round. They finish uh, fifth and they go, to, um, they, they, they go to Atlanta or they go to New York FC and they lose. Um, and then he's given the interim tag for the U.S. job. I think he might be in consideration for the full job. But it's a very narrow kind of um, scenario where that could happen. Now, you, you've said before, and I don't know if this is still your position, which is why I'm asking, that, that you felt like that perhaps they should hire an American coach or at least a coach that's familiar with American players. Yes, that was my position. Um, and has been my position. That was under the assumption we qualified for the World Cup and that there was okay. youngsters from MLS coming in um, to, from these academies, the guys we mentioned, Durkin, Carrollton, etc., that uh, the new coach would have to take over in uh, August of 2018 after Bruce was done in July in the World Cup uh, and build towards a Gold Cup campaign and qualifying. Now we have eight extra months and no World Cup. I think... Um, I would still keep some of those names in mind, and the names I had in mind were Burhalter, Marsh, uh, Vermees, and Porter, and maybe Kreiss. Kreiss is maybe the fifth guy. Maybe he's in that mix. Um, but you have to look outside, I think, now with, okay, if you have a preference to guys familiar with the American um, player and American system, you can look immediately north of us to Octavio Zambrano, immediately south to us to uh, – to, um, uh, Juan Carlos Osorio. Now, Osorio won't be available, I assume, until July. Uh, you never know what the FMF. He might be available in a month, and, and we, we, we could pounce at that point. But um, if yeah. it is Osorio, you have to wait. Zambrano, uh, you know, I, 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 Octavio knows the this American system so well, which is why the Canadians hired him, um, because of his MLS familiarity and his familiar, familiarity with the lower divisions uh, in this country, which, of course, the Canadian teams are um, as of today all in those um, in those leagues. I, I, I have seen a report, and I can confirm it based on my sourcing and documents I've seen, that FC Edmonton will not uh, be an ML, an NASL next year. They're going to be moving to the new Canadian League. And I, ha- I believe Ottawa might do that in the future, not necessarily next season. They might leave USL. But uh, Octavio Zambrano is a coach I, I like, and um, I just think that maybe Canada is a better job for him, though, that it's lower pressure, and it seems like um, the, the CSA is going to give him a lot of autonomy that he may not get here. So, But that's the guy I'd look at. I'd look at Juan Carlos Osorio. Um, obviously, if you have other coaches that have worked within the U.S. system, Carlos Quiroz, who's now taking Iran to another World Cup, uh, and has a relationship, an established relationship with Sunil Gulati and U.S. Soccer Federation, you look at him. Um, or maybe you blow it up and you look at, you just go get the best coach that's available, which would probably, every single guy I've named, with the exception of Osorio, would not be on that list. I mean, yeah. I just listed even foreign coaches that are familiar with the American system. Um, maybe you go out and you, you say, okay, Bielsa, okay, Sampole, uh, after Argentina's done in the World Cup, uh, uh, Passarella. It's funny, I'm naming all Argentine managers, but uh, you know, we can go beyond that. Let's look at some European guys, too, and um, and go after them. I mean, a guy I, I would uh, love to hire, uh, 
based on what I've seen thus far this season, uh, Saturday notwithstanding, is is Peter Bosch, uh, former Ajax manager, current uh, manager of uh, of Borussia Dortmund. Uh, may, maybe you make this job tempting enough for a younger manager like Thomas Tuchel. I, I think he'd probably want to still manage at the club level, but maybe you do something to entice someone like that who's actually available right now. Uh, it, a guy like that. Uh, or you right. you find a way... I mean, I, I was on with Chris Gluck the other night. and said, oh, wouldn't it be great to get Arsene Wenger? I, I don't think that is in any way, shape, or form possible. But if there's even <laughs> if there's even like a 0.02% chance that that could happen... You do it. Yeah. You, you, you go for it. So, um, yeah, I think you, you, there, there, if, if you're going to look outside of the circle of guys who know American players, then you can shoot for the stars. What are your thoughts? Well, you know, you, you mentioned a couple of the names. I mean, I'm not a big Bearhalter fan, um, but I am a big Jesse Marsh fan. And yesterday was... Uh, I understand the, the reason I bring Bearhalter up is not because I'm a fan, but because he's... Um, um, He's got inf- he's got more influence in the federation than any of these MLS coaches, current MLS coaches. Sure, and I you know I, I appreciate I think that somebody that whoever takes the job needs to have under a pretty good understanding of how the federation works. But I also think maybe more important than that right now is just somebody that has an understanding of of the American player, but also uh, connections with Europe and a desire to better themselves and improve themselves tactically. And that's part of the reason that I like Jesse Marsh so much. Um, I really thought that, you know, his matches against Tata Martino, interestingly, are kind of a, a really fascinating case study in, in why I think he's a good tactical manager. It's a playoff game, I hope, happens, because they've had three different games that they've played now, and, and the the tactics in those games has been so different. Um, each time, obviously, he's highly thought of in Europe. We know now that that Rebel Salzburg certainly at least met with him on multiple occasions, talked to him about being a coach there. Um, we know that you know he's a guy that what has gone to Poland and Germany in the last two or three years to to better himself and improve what he knows. Uh, tactically, so he's, he's right. He's taking coaching think, courses over there, which most American co- uh, coaches don't. Yeah, I mean, there's a dose of humility in that that I appreciate. Um, so, you know, I think uh, I think he's a name that that would be high on my list if it's a current MLS coach. Um, I like Peter Vermis. My issue with Peter Vermis is sometimes I think that they get a little static and flat. Um, you know, but but then again, you know, a lot of those concerns I had were the first half of this year, where I wondered if if he kept it fresh enough, and and you know, I think that they do, uh, or certainly have played better soccer the second half of this year. It kind of refreshed, you know, the confidence that I have in him. I know he's a guy that's worn the shirt, so there's there's something to that um, as well. I think an ex-player would be useful. Uh, right, and he so, was the captain. I think this is forgotten because uh, John Harks got this captain for life uh, tag, but uh, actually Vermees was the captain and then got released from the team right. before the, the 94 World Cup, but he had captained the team. Uh, the U.S. Uh, men's national team, a lot of people don't realize this, this shows my age, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> um, existed essentially as a club team for the guys that didn't ha- weren't playing in Europe. Um, 
And during that period, the latter part of that period when Vermees came back, now he was, I think, the first guy to get a contract, or maybe Eric Ronaldo was, can't remember. One of those two were the first guys to get a contract from a European club after um, the uh, 1990 World Cup. And um, when he came back, he was the guy given the armband. Now, John Harkes was doing unbelievably great things, uh, putting the United States on the map at Derby County, you know, really kind of breaking the glass ceilings for, Amer- for American field players. Um, the same glass ceiling that uh, uh, Casey Keller uh, and Jurgen Sommer and eventually Brad Friedel smashed for goalkeepers. But um, Vermees captained the team in, I would probably say, a dozen games. So he, he's a former yeah. captain. No, and then, you know, you know, he's. I think he's a name that that is going to be be high in the mind of people. If I had a weird hire, you know, just kind of weird out there, go for it. It would it would be Ancelotti. Um, <laughs> and I know a lot of people will push back on that. That's fine. But you know, I don't know. I think if you're gonna if you want to be compact and organized and and hard to break down and hard to beat and blister people on the break, then kind of makes sense, right? So, yeah, it makes uh, a lot of sense. And I, and I think... <laughs> I don't know. Ancelotti also might be a guy that, you know, maybe is interested. Yeah, no, um, that that might be... That's a pretty good shout. I mean, I, I look, I've been so critical of Roberto Martinez as Everton's manager and, and even at the end at Wigan, but it seems to be working with Belgium. Now, of course, the test will come next summer, but right now, when I watch international football, I, I don't think, well, maybe Brazil... Besides Brazil and Germany, I, I don't see anyone who's really better than Belgium. We keep talking about how good we think France is going to be next summer. But um, Martinez has certainly punched uh, Belgium up into that elite level. So if you think yeah. outside the box and you get – and he's a guy you had talked about it two years ago when uh, he got fired by Everton or a year and a half ago. Maybe he was the right guy for us with his familiarity yeah. with the U.S. through his TV work in this country. Um, so maybe there's a coach like that. Uh, maybe you can, right. you can take a Marco Silva from Watford or someone like that. I mean, these are all maybe really um, difficult sell, sales jobs, but uh, you know, maybe there's something you can do uh, like that. Um, right. You know, you know interestingly, interestingly enough, I mean, there are all kinds of weird things that happen in international football. You'll find this one interesting. I, it's not going to happen. Uh, we know that. But Dennis Lawrence beats the U.S. game you were at a week ago. And – Wales is dissatisfied with uh, Chris Coleman not qualifying them. I have seen one report in the well in, in Wales saying, "Okay, here's a list of candidates. Let, Dennis Lawrence is on the list because, of course, he played for Swansea for years, and right. he got this one win. So, um, if they can think that way, maybe we can think that way too. Maybe there are guys with connections to the U.S. that are that are uh, coaching or playing in, in Europe that uh, we haven't thought of. Yeah, I mean, look and. I, I got in a conversation with Steve Davis today on Twitter about about Osorio, and I think I think the differences in managing the the club game and the international game are important in the context of a guy like that. <laughs> I note that outside of Jesse Marsh, the people that have succeeded at, at Red Bull New York that that's a short list. Um, you know, remember even Bruce had his issues there. Yeah, let's so, see the guys uh, who've succeeded at Red Bull New York are Octavio Zambrano. Uh, Osorio and Marsh. The guys who have failed include Carlos Quiroz, Carlos Alberto Pereira, Bora, Bob Bradley, and Bruce Arena. That's a pretty good list. Yeah. Uh, the guys who right. failed. <laughs> I mean, it's a good it, list it, all it, over. But uh, yeah. it's funny. You're talking about that. 
Um, I just said two of the three guys who've succeeded are managing the national teams immediately bordering us in Osorio at Mexico and Zambrano now up, right. in, up in Canada. Maybe you go for the hat trick and you give Marsh the job. Yeah, that, that, right. And that's what's, what's interesting about, about Osorio is that, you know, it's a job he wants. Uh, I, I have that on pretty good authority that, that, that I trust the people to tell me that, that he wants that job. Um, you know, Osorio was full of praise for Arena this summer. Uh, but it was interesting because he he kept praising his rotaciones. So, of course, Arena abandoned his squad rotations in Trinidad, and the U.S. failed to qualify for a World okay, Cup. Okay, Osorio does manage here. Um, American fans need to get used to that. And he will even yeah, rotate I mean, his goalkeepers. Well, come to think of it, Arena was rotating his goalkeepers, too. Um, hey, what? Well, that's, what, that's what's so interesting, right? Is, uh, people, oh, that'll drive Americans crazy. Well... Arena did that for seven games, and it was good enough to go to Russia, and then he stopped, and now we know how that ended. So, um, you know, but, but but to your point, he Osorio understands two things fundamentally that, that position him perhaps a little bit better. I don't like him that much as a tactician, let's be clear about that, but I think, I think he is smart enough and professorial enough, I think, in fact, to, to, to know what his weaknesses are. I think that's why he's staffed the Mexico job the way he has. And I don't think that Osorio doesn't have a pretty high – there's no, like, real high level of arrogance with him. Like, he's humble enough to say, hey, I don't know everything. And I think that's super important and obviously was a big flaw with Jurgen. Um, and it's important for the U.S. to have somebody that knows the Latin American system, that knows the Mexican system, that knows the American player – that has connections to Europe, like, you really do need to check all of those boxes. Yeah, Osorio, I, I don't know if our listeners, maybe they know it because I've said it enough, but, uh, again, I'm a Man City supporter, so part of my partiality to Osorio was that he was at City for four years. He was a low-level assistant, but it was a high-enough-level assistant for um, him to get Paolo Wanchope to come over and play in MLS once he got the Chicago job and a high-enough-level assistant for Claudio Reyna to recommend him to Red Bull. Uh, when Bruce Arena got fired. Um, right. So he made an impression on the guys who were there at the time, including Juan Chope and, and Reyna. And um, he also spent some time in Liverpool under Gerard Houllier, uh, top coach. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, that's where he got his badges. He went to Liverpool for, uh, for a year. So, and, did, and, and, and kind of apprenticed, to, you know, he was a, um, he was a, um, uh, how would you put it? He was like an intern, right? He did what Christ did with, in Manchester. Um, but he got his badges at that point and then came back, uh, was an assistant under Zambrano, actually, aforementioned Octavio Zambrano with the Red Bull or with Metro Stars at the time, and then uh, went back to England and, and uh, stayed with City for the four years Kevin Keegan was there, three and a half years or so, three and a half to four years. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, so, I mean, look, I, I think I think that there's, there's a host of, of good candidates. We've mentioned some of the boxes that I think need to be checked. Um, I think the search has to be really deliberate. I think it's got to be wider than you can't have a Donald Trump, I alone can fix it kind of mentality. Um, I don't think that'll work. Uh, so, you know, it'll be interesting. What, what about Tap Ramos, who's another name that people keep bringing up? What's your kind of position on that? Uh, not as the permanent senior <laughs> head coach. 
Uh, he he's not. Um, uh, he's done a, a reasonably decent job with the U twenties. Although I think there's some tactical limitations we've seen when they've been eliminated in the last two tournaments. I would like to see him get an MLS job and coach for. I mean, I know we. we it sounds like we bash MLS, but it's still. I, I'd be much more comfortable with a guy who's coached an MLS than a guy who's coached the U.S. youth national teams. If I'm perfectly honest, I think there's a certain degree of uh, experience and man management that comes from club management. And keep in mind, with the uh, youth national teams, you essentially play in qualifying tournaments and then you play in a major tournament. You don't really have that much need to man manage guys or to um, deal with the egos of guys that are professionals. So, um, yeah, I, I, I would uh, prefer, if, if we're going to go down that route of, of keeping it within the family, I'd prefer an MLS coach to, to, to Tab or anyone who's um, a youth national team coach exclusively. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, any, any other name? That we're, I've seen Patrick Vieira's theme high on the list that of odds they put on the ESPN FC program the other Yeah, night. and he's kinda he's kinda adamant that he's not really the right guy right now. Which makes sense because there's a lot of quick paths back to Europe for him. Right. Uh, you know, and I'm sure that you know, people are like, Oh well what if he likes living in America and it's like, Well, yeah, but when you're when you've lived in London and, and Paris Right. Uh, and meanwhile right. <laughs> you know yeah, <laughs> right. London, Paris, and Milan. Like, I don't think, I don't think Patrick Vieira is somebody that's like, ah, yeah, I have to settle my family in America. <laughs> right, uh, but his name's on the list. You see Tata's name on the list. Um, that uh, would be interesting. But I think Tata uh, was looking forward to getting back to club management, which is why he took this Atlanta job, uh, the Argentina yeah. job. Now, look, the AFA was an absolute mess to the point where players were ready to walk out on on the national team, and, and fortunately for Argentina, they didn't because they wouldn't have qualified otherwise, obviously. Um, uh, they barely qualified as it is. Um, yeah. But I don't think he's ready to jump back into international management. What we saw with him is he went Paraguay for a couple of years, then jumped to Barcelona, uh, then Argentina. The Argentina thing didn't end well, although he took them you know, as far as he could, right? Two scoreless draws with Chile, lost on penalty kicks uh, at the end of both, but... Um, uh, did a fantastic job. I, I think he wants to settle in and, and, and kind of implement his style at Atlanta United. So I'm not sure he's going to want to do it. Trying try to think who else was on that list. Certainly Jesse Marsh was on there. Um, Burhalter, Porter, and um, Burmese. Now with Porter, I don't think, um, unless the Federation changes, I don't think he can play the political game with them and he, he, he won't last long. Um, and that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. Right, that's that's bad. That's bad on the federation. That's good on Caleb Porter. But Porter has got, um, I think, the temperament to where he will clash with the um, with the suits at the federation. So they, they that might be a non-starter. Um, but you never know. I mean, we might have a change in this federation election, and you might have more progressive thought processes and more openness. And and if that's the case, that maybe Caleb Porter, uh, being a young American coach. Um, is the right with a different style of play, or at least a, uh, an, a, an attempt to play differently, is the uh, is the guy. But um, I, you know, if, if if you hold my the gun to my head, Neil, I'm going to go back to to the name you gave first, which is Jesse Marsh, because he 
He's got a, a more European outlook. He's gone over there, as we've talked about. Uh, he just went to Poland a couple months ago, right, the week of the uh, between right. the Philly and NYCFC games to get to, to do some work, to take some coaching courses over there. Um, the style of play Red Bull plays right now is the style of play I, I – now, this is a personal preference. It's the style of play I'd like to see the U.S. play. Now, maybe it's not possible. Maybe we should just be more pragmatic and practical in what Bruce – does, which is to set us up on the break and uh, and, and, and seed possession. Maybe that's the way we, we have to play. But ideally, I'd like to see us play the way Jesse has is, is got Red Bull playing and the way he's had him playing now for three seasons. Um, it's not a one-year thing. I thought um, Dax leaving would affect their ability to keep the ball in midfield, and certainly there have been some growing pains for Tyler Adams, but he's fitting in playing that kind of style. Um, and then the other thing about Jesse is that he's got a lot of Bob Bradley in him, obviously. Princeton, D.C. United, Chicago, Chivas USA, uh, New York. Um, you know, he, he, he is uh, yeah. he's kind of Bob Bradley 2.0. Um, Bradley worked for this national team. There are people who, who, who want to say he didn't. But um, I think he, he, he did a better job in terms of consistency than Arena or Klinsman. Yes, Arena got the team to the quarterfinals, but we struggled to qualify that time. We struggled to get out of the sub-hex. We really were lucky uh, to get out of the group. Um, there was a lot of fortune. I think the consistency of our program under Bradley um, until that final game where there were some flukish things that happened, but we still went out to a 2-0 lead, I think the consistency is what we need to strive for. If we had any degree of consistency and continuity right now, we'd be talking about Either our two legs of the playoff with Australia, or we'd be talking about Russia. Instead, we're having these other conversations. So, yeah, um, I mean, I, I think we, I think yeah, Jesse right. might be the guy. You're you're convinced? Yeah, we, no, I mean, I, I like the idea of I, I, I think it's I think it's a smart play, and I don't think you need a hail mary hire. I mean, I don't think you need to go out and get somebody like Peckerman, who's a retread that that. You know the federation has gone after before, and obviously won't won't be. A well, part yeah. Of the so Neil talked to Peckerman in 2006, and he didn't want the job. Now, um, it's 12 years later, and um, the problem on Peckerman again is uh, if Columbia had lost the other day, it would have been a lot easier, right? But um, he, he's tied up now, at least until the World Cup. I mean, who knows? Columbia might want to renew him. They might go to the quarterfinals again, uh, like they did last time. That's very possible, and. Um, he may not be available at all. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, again, I mean, th- these are, I, I just don't think it'll be, it won't come out of left field, is I guess the point I'm making. And, and, you know, I don't know if Peckerman would qualify as somebody that would come out of left field, but I think that the U.S. will avoid that sort of retread hire. Um, and, you know, Osorio might be as close as they get to sort of creeping towards a retread. Um, but, but now the, and then the jury's out. Obviously, on you know Mexico has their most important soccer ahead of them. But I, you know, as you and I have both stated on multiple occasions, this is easily the best cycle they've ever had thus far. Yeah, um, and and it, the, Mex- really the Mexican that, it's not even that close. The Mexican media wants to act like well, the team is much more talented now because they don't want to give us Soria credit because he's a foreign manager. Um, I, <laughs> 
Right. I mean, that's the way they are. They're worse than we are. I mean, we complained about the way Fabian Johnson and et cetera have been treated earlier, but Mexico was that much worse. I mean, try being a naturalized player. Try being Senia or uh, Guillermo Franco and playing for Mexico right. and, and getting, right. getting jeer, you know, you, you, you come back to the airport, you come back from San Pedro Sula. This was back in 2009, and the, the people who come to the airport to greet the team haven't come uh, for any other reason but to, 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 to throw hurl obscenities at the foreign-born players. Vu, Matias Vuoso was another one of those. I mean, and uh, yeah. Chaco Jimenez. There were a few guys who were Argentine or Brazilian-born that they just they just couldn't take. And Gio Dos Santos, they, they thought of as like part Uruguayan and, and part Brazilian. But Brazilian it is, right? With him, uh, Gary Castillo, it's Uruguayan. Um, and they didn't accept him until he was just so damn good. <laughs> they forgot about that. Um, Mexico is tough, and they, they're, they're really tough on Osorio. Yeah. How much control would would you think that the Federation will give the next coach? Because I, my, my thought would be that, that it'll be a lot, um, just because of, of kind of what the task is ahead and also because of the timeline of that task where, you know, obviously the 2019 Gold Cup is important, but but there's an argument to be advanced that, that the 2020 Copa America really isn't. So, uh, you know, as, as excited as people will be for it, but you're essentially hiring somebody to kind of guide you through the 2019 Gold Cup and then get ready for qualifying. Yeah, although I think given the fact that we're missing a World Cup, that 2020 Copa now looms as your only competitive matches against top countries until you get to... To presumably get to 2022. Um, right, right. So I think it's probably taking on an added significance. Yeah, um, how much control? I mean, if it's Sunil, not that much. I think this was ultimately why he couldn't get Peckerman or he couldn't get Klinsman the first time or um, uh, he had met with even, Fabio Patel. Even, even, even Japan, right? I mean, look at, uh, what's his name? Kyle Hildovich, right? I, yeah. mean, I think it's a lot more control there than... than uh, he has his hands on everything. Yeah, and that was the deal with Zaccaroni, too, to get him to come over from Italy. They, they had to cede control to him. Um, and we talked to Fabio Capello. Sunil and, and Bob Bradley met Fabio Capello at Heathrow Airport. They're trying to get him to come in and, and, and help Bob. Now, I think he would have been the technical director. Obviously, Bob would have remained as the coach. And uh, they weren't even going to give him enough control as the technical director that you know, three months later he took the England job um, because he was able to coach them, too, although that didn't work out for him. Personally, um, so I I don't know. I mean, I, if it's Sunil, I don't think he's going to be willing to give up much control. If it's someone else, right. it might be different. Um, and Brian Strauss has written articles about uh, Dan Flynn not wanting to give up control to, to Klinsman uh, in terms of scheduling, remember, scheduling friendlies. Um, yeah. I have to go back and find that article, but that was uh, – uh, Strauss writing that in 2011 or 2012. I, I think it was when he was uh, not with SI but with the Sporting News back in the day. Um, I think it will be very difficult um, if Sunil is the, the president to convince a really high-level coach that you're going to be willing to to kind of take the shackles off of this thing and, and, and give them the autonomy that they'll probably require. Um, and uh, that's... Probably another reason you end up with someone um, like, like like Jesse Marsh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's all pointing let's back there. With, let's close with this question, and, and this kind of can build towards 
some of the more systemic reform questions that we'll we'll address in in the months to come in, in various podcasts. But one interesting take I heard uh, just this week, um, and I won't I won't say the actual name of of, of the head coach that that mentioned this to me other than to say that he's a world champion, which pretty much gives it away, I'm sure, if, if you know my personal connections. But uh, <laughs> but he asked about the FIFA calendar and noted that when you play a primary giant qualifier against an arch rival in November, you end up with players who have just started their vacation coming back into the camp against Mexico players who are on vacation. Um, and he suggested that at least four of the U.S. qualifiers, there may have been some form and fitness issues when you bring in non-European players. And he thought that this cycle, it finally caught up to the United States. He was very candid about this. And if anyone wants to read my um, discussion and summary of that discussion with that world champion head coach, I would just say stay tuned to Haller.com, or whatahaller.com. But but what's your thought on that? Is that a reform that the U.S. seriously needs to consider addressing in the next five years? Is it time to finally shift to the FIFA calendar? Oh, yeah. I I mean, I'm the wrong person to talk to about it because I've said, to me... And is is this world champion coach that that shall remain very obvious and yet anonymous? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I... Yeah, I'm the wrong person to talk to about that, Neil, because my, my perspective has been that uh, shifting the calendar, I'm for pro-rel, I'm for the solidarity fee payments, I'm for um, uh, uh, doing what we can about pay-to-play. I have said for years that to me, and maybe it's my perspective living in Florida and dealing with the, um, the weather we've had over the summer, and then having worked at Elite and, and all the rainouts and, and delays we've had, and same thing in the Carolinas, and then working at Elite, dealing with those same rainouts, but then also dealing with transfer and ITC issues because our transfer windows weren't aligned, and, our, and really it hurting our ability to get players in, that I have this perspective. But no, I, that, that to me is a no-brainer. I know there are people up north who are going to say, oh, you can't play in Montreal and and you can't play in, in Minnesota in, in the middle of winter. Well, you schedule around that. You do what they do in No, Germany. take a winter break. Yeah, you do take a winter take break. And uh, you have to you have to align yourself with these these other leagues now in order to um, even improve the business prospects. If we talk about the player development, the business prospects right. of MLS academies and MLS clubs and USL academies and USL clubs selling players on to European and Latin American clubs it's a lot easier if your windows are aligned, if your seasons are aligned, and as far as the fitness issues, yeah, that was one thing I, you know, Jurgen Klinsmann said a lot of stupid things as manager. He, he, he always, was, he never wanted to be accountable, he wanted to blame other people, but when he said that thing about U.S. players and fitness a couple of Januarys ago, I said, yeah, exactly, you're right, it's because of our calendar and because there's also a an ethic about fitness in other leagues, right, and you know, we know that the fitness training, all of that regimen is probably more developed in European uh, leagues. But um, 
I, I completely attributed that to, to, to our to our calendar, and then part of our calendar being taken up uh, by by playoffs in MLS, to where some of those guys had been off since October and came into the January camp unfit. unfit. Guys like Lawless got really angry. Well, if there's anything uh, we American players are, it's fit. Okay, it's nice to, to say that stuff, but we've seen late-game mistakes. We've seen late-game lapses. We saw Michael Bradley against Portugal. That all come. There's, there's a mental fitness that comes uh, through, too, if your calendar is misaligned. And uh, absolutely. Maybe this is a theme we develop in another show because you um, – you brought something up that's got me going, and, and we're over an hour now, and I don't want to go for another hour. No, 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 I'm sure our listeners, it was just something that came up this week when, when I was having some conversations with various people, and and obviously this coach uh, thought it was important, and his kind of joke was, he always thought it was an advantage at the World Cup, but you have to get to the, to the World Cup to take advantage of it. Right, yeah. And yeah. Uh, he's right. So he was heartbroken, by the way. Um, you know, heart. It just, it just said it's just very upsetting. He said his son was very upset, uh, which I thought was sweet. Um, so I guess on that note, uh, I'm Neil Blackman. He's Carter Krishnayer. We are the Answer Coming Soccer Show. We will be back uh, shortly, and I think we'll do a show couple different shows. One, we, we talked about some systemic reform shows. Um, as we get closer to this November friendly, we'll, we'll dive more into some of the things that we might want to see there. And, and um, you know, just keep on keep on carrying on with, with what this disastrous news that is, that is now uh, really sinking in as reality. Juicy sizzling steak. Hand-tossed original dough, a four-cheese blend, and Papa John's creamy signature Philly sauce. It's like the best cheesesteak sandwich ever, but way better, because it's on a pizza, which means you can share it. So show some brotherly, or whateverly love, and get yourself one today. Right now, at Papa John's, get a large Philly or any large specialty Papa John's pizza for just 12 bucks. Yes, 12 bucks. Better ingredients, better pizza, Papa John's. At participating U.S. stores, prices may vary. Taxes tip and fee extra.